You're listening to the Frequently Asked Questions, Biblical Answers to Hard Questions series, taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We began our series in Frequently Asked Questions, Biblical Answers to Tough Questions about three months ago now. And we've been through seven different questions so far. And we're about to start our eighth question today. And the question that we have before us today is, should Christians celebrate Halloween? Okay, should qu- Christians celebrate Halloween? Now, I, w- I want to tell you this um, because apparently, I thought this was going to be one of those questions that would be fun to talk about, that it was um, not too, e- even if people disagreed on it, there wasn't really strong opinions. And I was talking to Tara last night and she was like, no, there are people that have very, very strong opinions on Halloween, and this could be a very touchy subject, and I guess I didn't realize that until last night, so she's got me terrified now of this morning. But I, I want to give you the disclaimer that I gave at the very start of the class, okay? When we started this three months ago, I said that, first of all, I don't presume to have all the answers. Okay? I know that there is something in what I'm doing that's, that's probably wrong, um, not probably, there is something that I believe or something that I'm doing that is wrong. I'm not perfect. Okay? I don't have perfect doctrine. I don't have perfect practice. I am doing my best to discern what the Bible says and to apply it to my life. And I hope you're doing the same thing too. But don't think that I'm standing up here as some kind of, and, and, or at least thinking that I'm some kind of special authority. What I'm trying to do is the same thing you're trying to do is to open up the Word of God and discern it. And so I said that, I also want you to know that my goal here today is to allow the Bible to supersede, first of all, our culture. And I hope you've seen that as we've answered questions so far, that we have not gone with what culture says. Okay, we haven't tried to twist the Bible to suit our culture, but at the same time, I want want to allow the Bible to supersede even our Christian culture. I hope that makes sense, because if we were to go around the world, we, in, in every denomination, in every church, you would have a, a special, separate Christian culture, and that's just going to happen, but I hope we understand that our goal is to get beyond even that, even denominational culture, even how we might naturally view things in our church. We want to allow the Bible to supersede those things. And so I believe the Bible is trustworthy, that it's relevant, that it's authoritative today, And ultimately, my goal is that we can answer these questions in our personal lives in a way that brings glory to our God. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have today to study your word. Lord, I thank you for the gift you gave to us in your word, that it is perfect and that you've preserved it for us and that you inspired it. And Lord, that is relevant for our lives today. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to look at this topic um, that for some people might be very important. Others, it's just an interesting thing to talk about. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to try and discern this aspect of our culture biblically and that we would do what pleases you in this area as individuals. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the cross. We thank you um, that no matter what we decide to do, even if, Lord, we're, we're wrong in this area, We know that you forgive us and that you love us. And so, God, I pray that because of your love for us, we would try and serve you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to frame this discussion with two passages of Scripture, and I I think this kind of hits the two sides very well. The first passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul is giving some of the reasons why he does what he does. And ultimately, we'll see in this passage that his reason for doing what he does is so that he could see as many people come to Christ as possible. That is his goal, and he's willing to give up his liberties in order to reach that goal. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. So as we read that passage of scripture, I, what, what jumps off the page to me is this, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm going to do everything humanly possible to remove cultural barriers from the gospel when I'm dealing with people. So I am not going to allow my culture, my preference, to get in the way of sharing the gospel with other people. I'm going to give up my liberties or maybe take on their liberties in order to get the gospel to them. But then he makes very clear in the middle of that, in the parenthesis, he says, but I'm still under the law of God. So I'm going to do everything I can to remove barriers, but I'm not going to break God's law. That's what I think our goal should be as well. But then in 2 Corinthians, so speaking to the same church, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the living temple of God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be your father, and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And so we read this passage written by the same author, and he's making clear in this passage of Scripture that there should be a difference between light and darkness. That as, of as a child of God, your life should look differently than the life of everybody else in the world. And so if there are some areas of your life that are different from the world, that's okay, that's expected, that's a good thing. And if that's never happening, then there's a problem. And so I wanted to frame this discussion because I want to say, at, on one hand, we don't want to put cultural barriers up to the gospel. We don't need to, to forfeit all of our freedoms just to conform to some type of Christian culture or some Christian expectation that others place on us. Okay, we want to remove those barriers. We want to get to the gospel, but still be under the law of God. At the same time, we want to recognize that we do need to be separate. We're called to be a holy, peculiar people unto our God. We are his children, not children of the world, and so we should be different in some areas. And I hope that as we look at this discussion about Halloween, we'll keep those two things in mind, okay? So we're going to begin... Now, by giving you a little bit of the history of Halloween, so we kind of have a good framework of, of what Halloween is all about. Before we do that, I want to make this point. Did you know that, that many things about our culture that we do all the time or we, we take part in all the time have some kind of pagan root, some pagan foundation? 
Okay, I, I was thinking about that this week, and I thought about the day that Tara and I got married. It was June, Saturday, June the 12th, 2004. Now, we understand the year 2004 is Anno Domini. It is in the year of our Lord, 2004. And so we're celebrating Christ's birth by saying the date. But at the same time, Saturday is Saturn's day. And so it's, it's talking about the day that belongs to the god Saturn. And June is the month of Juno, which is a, a female goddess for the Romans. And she was the wife of Jupiter. She's actually the goddess of marriage. And so we, we say the date. I got married on Saturn's day in Juno's month in the year of my Lord, 2004. To get how that is kind of, it's kind of unique how that happens. And not only that, on that day I exchanged rings with my wife. She still wears it, I still wear it. Um, I haven't actually lost it, it's an incredible thing. But do you know that the, the whole celebration of, of rings is a, it's a pagan tradition. And so many things about our culture come from pagan traditions. I think it's important to, for us to realize that, not to think that, that, you know, it's just this one thing. But let's get into the, the, History of Halloween, because it does have very pagan roots. It began around 3,000 years ago with a, with a Celtic religious festival called Samhain or Samhain. It's pronounced those two ways. Now, it's, it's spelt Samhain, but it's called Samhain or Samhain. And I'm not sure which one I'll go with the whole time that I talk about it, but one of the two. <laughs> um, the Celts were a tribal people that lived in modern-day Europe, primarily in Ireland and Scotland. And they had a festival, this Samhain, that celebrated the end of harvest, the end of the summer, and then the very next day celebrated the brand new year. So October 31st was the end of harvest. It was the date that that they marked that from now on the days are getting shorter. Summer is over, harvest is over, we're getting into the winter. And for them, winter was a, was a bad thing. It was something that they had to prepare for. It was something where the days got darker. It was, it was, so this was kind of, in some ways, leading up to a negative time of the year. But they celebrated it because they wanted to appease their gods and goddesses. And they were, they were polytheistic. In some ways, they were pantheistic. They, they worshipped the earth and the, the rain and, and all different things. And so in order to appease those gods in this day, they would light massive bonfires and they would sacrifice animals on them. And so, I, I don't know, but at Halloween, I guess one of the traditions we have today is, is bonfires, big bonfires. Well, that, part of that can be traced back to these roots. The other thing that's interesting about that day is the, the Celts had druids, which were priests. And the priests said that at, the, at that date, in that evening, because October 31st, when the day is done... That marks the end of the first year, of that year, and then it doesn't, the next year doesn't begin until the first light of November 1st, that that is this in-between time, and the gates to the spirit world were open during this in-between time. And so you could have spirits, maybe past loved ones, just any type of spirit, that could at that time go through the gates from the spiritual world to the physical world and inhabit people. And, and come in. And so what, what they would do to fight against this is they would dress up in costumes because they wanted to confuse them. They would go outside. They would have big parties, make lots of noise because their goal was to 
keep the spirits away from them. And this was one of their ways of doing that. This holiday took place, it was taking place during the time of Christ. And it took place all the way, just as that, all the way up until about the 4th and the 5th century. And during that time, Christianity finally reached Ireland and Scotland. Okay? And now it's, it's becoming more of what we would recognize now as the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church comes into Ireland and Scotland, and they have this pagan practice. Now what the church did during that time is that instead of trying to remove pagan traditions when people got saved or, or when people converted to Christianity, what they would try and do is they would try and redeem those things. So they would take a pagan tradition and try and staple something Christian on it. And so if people were at that time coming to worship a tree, they would say, okay, well, let's come and worship the tree, but let's also worship the one who created the tree, and let's still meet at the same time in this same place, but instead of worshiping the tree now, we're going to worship God. So that, that's how they, would, they, they worked, at least for a number of centuries. The problem was, it didn't seem to work with this holiday. Okay? The, the traditions were so ingrained in these people, and they were passed on so vehemently that nothing really changed. Sawain looked the same. And so, in the 8th century, a man named Pope Gregory III decided to move All Saints Day from May until November 1st. Because now he was actually very clearly marking a new Christian holiday on the day after Samhain, which would be their new year. And he's trying to just completely remove anything about Samhain from this. Now it's All Saints Day. And that would make October 31st All Saints Eve. Well, the word hallow is synonymous with saints. Okay? It means separate or holy. And so all saints Eve is all hallows Eve. And in the 16th century, they just started calling it Halloween. And so the actual name Halloween is a Christian name. It's, it's, it's referring back to all saints Eve or all saints day. That is when what we think of as Halloween started to become more of a, a Western type of thing. So o- over the years, the Catholics and that Catholic tradition added some things to that festival. For example, um, Catholicism taught that purgatory was, was real, that, that people, when they died, they would go to heaven or hell or somewhere in the middle, purgatory, a, a place of limbo. And so what children would do is they would go knocking door to door and they would they would offer to pray for your family in purgatory if you'd give them a cake. And so it was kind of the first trick-or-treating. And, and there was a number of different things like that that came into to place. It changed once again in 1517. Because on October 31st in 1517, that is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the All Saints Church of Wittenberg, Ger- Germany. And that started, it was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And so now, Protestants were denouncing the idea that we should worship saints, because All Saints Day is just a day to worship all the saints that don't have their own day. And so instead of doing that, a lot of churches, uh, the Methodist Church in particular, started thinking of All Saints Day as a day where we celebrate the lives of past believers who are strong believers, some martyrs, where we celebrate the lives of even modern-day believers, anybody who is a saint, who the Bible calls a saint, somebody who's just a believer in Christ. So now there are people that, that celebrate All Saints Day, but really it's more like, for them, Reformation Day. And so when, 
when Europe came over and they started colonizing North America, it was primarily Protestants that came over and Puritans that came over. And the Puritans hated everything about the old Halloween. They only wanted to celebrate Reformation Day. For many years, that's what Halloween looked like in North America. It wasn't Halloween. And that happened in the 18th century when a bunch of Irish people came over and they started colonizing. And when the Irish came over, they brought their Celtic influence again. They brought um, Samhain, or, or what they would now call Halloween, but had a lot of the influence of Samhain back. And so for about 100 years or so, it seems like Halloween was a fairly dark type of holiday. And it was dark until after they started, they tried to change that a little bit because there was a lot of evil happening on that day. And so they, they started trying to, to change the image. The government tried to change the image of Halloween to being more of a kid's day after the First World, world War, but it didn't really work because the Second World War had again and, and then everything was kind of just, Halloween was forgotten. But in the 1950s and 60s, they made a really big push to make it a children's holiday. And so for, during that time, Halloween would represent, I guess, what you might call the best aspects of Halloween today, where it was all about kids dressing up in nice costumes and going out and get candy and having parades and, and having a good time. But it wasn't, there wasn't the adults, the adults kind of stayed out of it. But then the, the folks from the 50s and 60s, many of you, <laughs> grew up and you liked Halloween. Halloween was a big deal for you when you were a kid. And so as you grow up with Halloween, you, you kind of adopt some more adult versions of Halloween. And so nowadays, Halloween seems to be something that is a big deal for everybody in culture, all ages. And that's kind of where we're at today. Um, it is important to recognize that today, although I believe that the vast majority of people don't think much about the pagan origins or the influence of Halloween, if you were to talk to your neighbors, they probably wouldn't know about the Celts and they wouldn't know about all of that history. Uh, I think... Every child in, in school would probably not know about those things. But there is a segment of our population, um, they're the Wiccans, who celebrate Halloween as their greatest holiday today. And that's the day that they say they, they take an hour and they, all of their dead relatives are able to come back and commune with them for an hour and they perform chants and ceremonies. And so for the Wiccans, this is like their biggest day of the year. So today, Halloween is celebrated by, by people of all ages. Um, some think of it as an opportunity to meet neighbors and have fun with their children. I think children, most children think of it as an opportunity to dress up in clothes that they wish they could wear every day. I know for my kids that's true. They wish they could go out as police officers or as elephants or various other princesses every day, and so this is an opportunity for them to wear the clothes to their neighbors and show off um, their favorite dress-up clothes and get some candy. Uh, some think of it as an excuse for a get-together. Some, some people it's more like a, a big party that they're looking forward to. Uh, there are some Christians that still celebrate it as Reformation Day, and so they have their children dress up as Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. Yeah, it's true, it happens. And there are some some Christians that think it's better to find a substitute, they, they have like a hallelujah party or a harvest fest. There are some people who use it as an opportunity to wear scandalous costumes and be a person that they're usually not on this one day of the year. As I said, there are some Wiccans who, who for them, it's their most important night of the year. They call upon their dead relatives to join them. 
And there are some Christians who entirely boycott it and think any part of it is wrong. And so that's kind of where we're at today. And I, and I would imagine within this church, we have a few people sitting here that are on different sides of this issue. Okay? I want to give you four very clear Christian perspectives on the issue, and then we'll look at what the Bible says. The four perspectives are, number one, Halloween is the devil's holiday and should be avoided by all Christians. This is a very strong denouncement of Halloween. It is, if you are a Christian, you should not take part in this holiday. If you do, then you are participating in its pagan origins or at least endorsing them in some way. And I I read a number of folks who wrote and said that when you participate in Halloween as a Christian, you're opening up your family to demonic oppression, possibly demonic, demonic possession if your children aren't saved. And so this is a very, very serious thing, should be avoided at all costs, and even substitutes are just shadows of the real thing, and so you should stay away from substitutes. So Halloween is the devil's holiday, should be avoided by all Christians. The second perspective is that Halloween should be substituted for, and then put what you want there, Reformation Day, a Hallelujah Party, a Harvest Fest, uh, some type of event where children get together and they have fun and they have candy and they have a Christian version of Halloween together but they don't participate in, in the knocking on doors. You, most likely these people will still have their lights off and are not handing out candy. And so they would say, well, Halloween, there's just enough pagan influence and there's enough evil that goes along with it that you should stay away from it, that you should substitute it for something else. The third position is that Halloween is a cultural holiday and believers have freedom to enjoy it. Okay, so they would say Halloween, it's just nowadays... It's not a pagan holiday. It is not something that that the vast majority of people think of as a way of worshipping Celt gods and goddesses. They say, yes, okay, it had that influence at the beginning, but that is long past, and that's not what we do now. Now it's just a fun thing, and so Christians have the freedom to enjoy it, to be a part of it. And they would say that the pagan roots and the symbolism actually means nothing to them, and that by... By doing Halloween the right way, you're just changing something that at one day was wicked, maybe like a Christmas tree, and, and having it something that's well, no big deal. Okay? It's just a, a, a fun, normal source of entertainment. Um, night of harmless entertainment. And then the fourth Christian perspective is that Halloween is an opportunity for evangelism and ought to be taken advantage of. So this would be the the group that says, well, the truth is, I think what the the church has done is that we've pulled ourselves so far away from culture that we've removed ourselves from culture, and this is actually an opportunity where we can stretch out an arm of fellowship to our neighbors and get to know them better and and have community with them and enjoy their fellowship and, and, and show them love on their own turf. And so it's okay for us to take part in this. In fact, it's, it's encouraged. Um, we should, if we do this, give out the best candy and be very complimentary of people and their costumes and try and be very friendly and try and use this to build relationships. And so I'd say those are the four Christian perspectives that, uh, that at least that I've come across. Okay, so we need to know what the Bible has to say. I think sometimes what we do is we take principles that are very, very broad and then we brush things with them very quickly. And so you can take a principle like avoid all appearance of evil. 
from 1 Thessalonians. It's just take that principle and then apply it to culture. And it's like, well, anything that could possibly look evil, you should avoid that. And principles like that, they, it, should, it should affect our thinking in some way. Okay? Those things should guide us. But we also need to understand that that is a very broad principle. And the best thing, I think, to do is to first look to the Bible for more close comparisons to what we're talking about. So rather than just taking this broad principle and then applying it very specifically, let's see if there's something in the Bible that is more specific, that is more like what we're talking about, and then apply that passage of Scripture first. Okay, Not getting rid of the other one, but first going there. And so I think that there are some passages of Scripture that seem to more clearly apply to this scenario. So I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start reading in verse 23. And I want you to keep in mind that this is Paul writing, and Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church lived in the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was the most wicked, evil city on the face of the planet at this time. Okay? They were very idolatrous. Their idolatry was very immoral. It was very open. The city was a wicked, wicked city. So keep in mind that he is not writing to a, a city that is very different from where we're at. In fact, their city would be much more evil than Chatham. At least more openly evil than Chatham. And so this is what he writes. And this is, again, this is Paul who wrote that you are God's children and you should be separate from the world. And he also wrote that you are God's children and you should be evangelistic in our world. And that means removing barriers to the gospel. So he's the one that said both of those things. And now he's saying this. Chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. We could stop right there and I think immediately say, Paul is saying that all things are lawful, he might be allowed to do it, but it's not expedient, it's not wise, it's not best, and so don't do it. Okay, and that, we, could, we could very quickly apply that principle there. But let's read on because I think he goes on and it's, he gets more specific of a comparison to our situation. He says, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Uh, the word wealth there is inserted. It's not actually there. It's probably italicized in your Bible. And so the, the idea of it being money or wealth is not, probably not right. What he's saying there is, um, don't seek yourself, the best of yourself. Seek what is better for other people. And, and so that's like kind of an a introductory statement to what's to follow. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles... That eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. The shambles is like the, the meat marketplace. And so what he's saying is when you go to the meat marketplace, buy whatever you want and eat it and don't ask any questions about it because if you ask questions, it might mess with your conscience. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that your conscience might tell you that you're not allowed to eat that meat even though you do have freedom to do it. Okay, so you have freedom to eat the meat, but because if you find out that that meat was offered to idols, which it very likely was offered to idols, you might say, okay, now I can't do it in good conscience. So he says, just don't even ask the question. Okay? Don't try and find out. He would, he would basically say to you, if, if coming to a class where you find out that there's pagan influences in Halloween is going to make you think that you shouldn't take part in it, then just don't go to the class. Right? Too late for you now. <laughs> but it's, it, it's kind of the idea. It's just don't ask, don't know, because it's, it's not actually bad. 
Okay, and Paul would never recommend that you be ignorant of something that was definitely sin. He wouldn't say, well, just don't read the Bible because then you won't know what's wrong. But he is saying here, this is something that's okay for you, and so don't, don't ask the question because you might think it's not, even though it is. Okay, let's go on. We are in verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, that, and his point there is that God owns it all. And these false gods and this idolatry and all of that, it really is vain. It's meaningless. There's nothing to it. God owns it all. And so that's why it's actually you're okay to be a part of that, that meat that was offered to idols. He says, if any man, if, sorry, if any of them that believe not, so it's an unbeliever, bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go. So if they ask you to come over for a party or a feast and you want to go, he says, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Again, if, if, if this is a, a party and there's unbelievers there and they ask you to go there, then you can take part in whatever meat they set be, before you and don't ask questions for conscience sake in case you think that it's going to be wrong, even though it was actually okay. But he says, if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice to idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a really interesting verse, because what he's saying here is, if, you're, if the unbeliever who invited you to this feast now tells you before you eat it, hey, listen, I offered this to idols. I, I, I didn't realize that you, you, you'd actually come, and, but now you're here, and I know that this is, you probably think this is really wrong, and this is probably bad for you, and so you shouldn't take part in this because this is going to be evil for you to take part in. He says, don't take part in it then because it's for their conscience sake because you don't want them to think that you're doing something evil. So when we read a verse that says, avoid all appearance of evil, this is more of a, a specific example of you actually avoiding the appearance of evil, even though it wasn't evil. And so in one hand, he says, if you can take part in it and nobody questions you and nobody else thinks it's wrong, then take part in it because you have freedom to do so. But if the world around you is going to tell you that you shouldn't take part in it because it's wrong for a Christian to do that, then don't do it. Stay away from it. Even though you still have freedom to do it, don't do it for their conscience' sake and for your conscience' sake. He goes on in verse 29. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judge of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for which I gave thanks? And he's saying, yes, by grace you could be a partaker, but why would you partake in something that people are going to be speaking evil about you because you did that? I mean, it's just not... You know, your grace isn't for that. And so, yes, you could be a partaker, but just give up that grace. Give up that freedom. Verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that this is where this verse lies? Because we, we do reference that verse quite often, but that verse is saying, whatever you do, make sure that what you're doing is to the glory of God. In other words, you could eat freely to the glory of God, or there are times that you must abstain for the glory of God. But whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor the Gentiles, nor the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And Paul goes back to exactly what he said 
in First Corinthians chapter, was it 9 or 11 that we read? First Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19. Exactly what he said. He's going back to, I'm going to be all things for all men that I might win some. And so I'm not going to offend. I'm not going to cause the church to sin. I'm not going to cause Jews to sin. I'm not going to cause Gentiles to sin. I'm going to try and give up my liberties for that. But ultimately my goal is that I can win people to Christ. Okay? That, that's why he's living. So it's to glory of God and to win people to Christ. And so when I read this chapter, I just jotted down a few lessons that I think we get. The first one is, verse 23 and 24, our freedom is to be used for the benefit of others. Okay? Those verses very, very clearly say, I can do all things, all things are lawful, but they don't edify others. They don't build up others. So I'm not going to do that. Don't seek your own, seek another. Okay? Try and benefit other people. So, our freedom is to be used for the benefit of others. The second thing I see is that believers are free to partake in things that were once used in pagan practices. Okay? And so those, that meat that was once used in a pagan practice is now free for the believer to partake in. Verse 25 and 27 make that clear. I also see that believers are not bound to understand all of the history behind everything they do. In fact, his recommendation was just don't ask questions. Verse 25 and 27. Number four, believers ought never to infringe upon our own conscience. Verse 25 and 27. So if you're going to do something that's going to infringe upon your own conscience, don't do it. I love this principle in Scripture because it makes sense of a lot of things. Okay? Why is it that some believers ought not do something and other believers have the freedom to do it and both of them are doing God's will? We want to make everything black and white, but we, we forget to understand that, that, first of all, people are at different levels of maturity, different levels of knowledge, and they deal with different temptations. And so if your conscience is telling you not to take part in it, then it is wrong. It is sin for you then to violate your conscience and take part of it. Even though Paul says that you actually are free to do that. And, and, and so the process of Christian maturity is growing in, in knowledge and growing in wisdom and, and, and overcoming some of your temptations, and eventually, someday, you might, in good conscience, be able to participate in that. But today you can't. And so don't. Believers not, ought never to infringe upon our own conscience. And, number five, believers should not participate in an activity that an unbeliever deems evil for Christians to be a part of. And recognize that in that text, in verse 28, it is very clearly speaking about an unbeliever. And so it's not just like you have... You know, one person in your church that says, well, you know, Christmas is evil and wrong. And so everybody says, okay, well, Christmas is even wrong. It has some pagan influences. And so we're not going to celebrate Christmas ever again because one person thinks we shouldn't. This is a case where it's an unbeliever and it's the world and you're giving up your liberty for the sake of their soul. And so it's okay for us to give up. In fact, we must, we ought to give up our freedoms if an unbeliever deems it evil for Christians to be a part of. Number six, everything we do can and should be done for the glory of God. And so even these little decisions that we make, we ought to make them ultimately because we're trying to bring God glory. Number seven, we should do what is right and what is best for the unsaved. Okay? And so that, those are the principles I think we get from those verses. We don't have that much time left, but I, I would encourage you to study these verses in your own time because I think it, it speaks to this issue as well. We have 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 23. We read those already, but I think they're great verses. Um, Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 16 to 19, in those verses, Paul is encouraging the church of Colossae not to allow other people to restrict them from enjoying or not enjoying certain holidays. And so, very specific, very relevant. Um, and then first, in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 23, we, we talked a lot about that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 14 when we covered the lessons, the second lesson on discerning gray matters. And so, if you want more lengthy exposition of Romans 14, you'll find it there. But it, I just want to read a couple of verses in Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 5. He says, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it to the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he giveth thanks to God. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. And again, is just driving home the point that this is, is a matter between you and God and not a matter between you and the person sitting next to you unless the person sitting next to you happens to be your mother or father. And then you do have some, a lot of other biblical principles about honoring your parents and obeying them that would, that would come to bear upon this subject. Okay? But for adult, individual believers... This is something you need to get right, be fully persuaded in your own mind before God, and then you shouldn't be forcing all of your standards and convictions and your conscience upon other people that choose differently. Okay? So, having said that, that's that's what I think the Bible says. Here, I'll give you my opinion very quickly. For me personally, I believe that my conscience does allow me to participate in Halloween. Okay, my kids will go out trick-or-treating and they will dress up like a princess. Probably not Miles dressing up like a princess, although he might want to. Miles will dress up as some kind of superhero and they will go out and knock on doors. And, and so far, we've done that for two years. Each year, we have had great conversations with neighbors. Each year, it's been nice to be able to, in, in a sense, show off your kids to neighbors. Okay, Tara said, I shouldn't say that, but that's... It's true. I mean, what you're doing is you're, you're taking your kids and you're introducing them. And it, it's fun to have them interact with your kids. And it's fun to, to have them see them all dressed up. And it's fun to be at the door and have your neighbor's kids come to see you. And so there, there are some potentially good things that happen. And so for me, my conscience allows me to participate. I'm not, it doesn't tell me I'm, I can't do that. I never feel like I'm wicked and evil when I'm doing it. And so for me, it's just a good opportunity to make greater relationships. Now, I'm not saying that because I celebrate Halloween, all my neighbors are going to get saved. Okay? It's not like this is like, I believe this is the greatest evangelistic night ever. Okay? But I do think that it's certainly not going to hurt to ha- for me to have my lights on and to try and be kind and loving to my neighbors on that night. Okay? But I do, again, realize that that's my conscience. It's not yours. And you should do what you think God wants you to do. I believe that Halloween today is very different than it was a long time ago, that uh, a lot of those pagan traditions and foundations, they're no longer relevant. They're certainly not relevant in the, the minds of my children or in the kids that come to my door. Uh, I asked Miles what, can- what Halloween's all about, and he said, candy. And so, maybe not a good thing, but certainly not <laughs> idolatry, <laughs> right? 
I think Halloween provides a unique opportunity for building relationships. I think celebrating Halloween the right way actually denies Satan's power. Okay, it's almost making a mockery of, of some of those things that, that this is maybe one time, this was a time that false gods were celebrated. Now is the time where we just meet neighbors and, and get candy and it, it means nothing. Okay? There's no power, satanic power to it. And I believe Halloween can serve to remind us of good things. Uh, and, and so if you were to take, I think, what would be more biblical view of All Saints Day, um, if you were to think about some of the good things that happened on Reformation Day, those things can just bring your mind to sacrifices that godly men and women have made throughout the centuries and maybe encourage you to continue on in your Christian life. And so that is my opinion and I think that's where we'll end. Okay, so thank you all for coming.